Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. Next two weeks, uh, we'll be talking about um, these, uh, we, we call them anchors, and anchors, uh, it's an implement that keeps something in place. You put a drywall anchor in, it keeps your picture, your TV hung, you're in a boat, you drop an anchor and it keeps you in a spot. These are values that we believe keep us connected or tied to what God wants to do in us and what he wants to do through us. And so uh, every church probably goes after these values in some way or another. For us, we feel like uh, this is one of the major reasons that God called our church into existence 15 or 16 years ago was that, that we could help one another grow in these four values. And we see them as kind of two pairs, if I can mix metaphors. If you think of a tree, you want deep roots and broad branches. And the first two anchors, those first two values, being led by the Spirit and becoming more like Jesus, that really is what God's doing in us. Those are our roots growing deep in Him. And those second two anchors... Uh, doing the good works that God has created in advance for us to do and serving in the places where he's planted us, that really has to do with, with what, excuse me, that has to do with, uh, with what God is doing through us. Again, kind of those broad branches. So before uh, I talk about those first two anchors, we're going to watch a video just so you can hear. Here, here's these values with some skin on. Here's some people in our church and how they're actively living out those first two anchors. So y'all, y'all check this out. Being like Jesus. I guess the first thing I want to say is activity, what we do, comes out of intimacy with Jesus. And so the more intimate you are with Jesus is the more that you will become like him. things Jesus uses is discipline and we don't like discipline. He had to chisel away at me because I was like a, a rock. By his spirit he showed me some things in me that he said, Stephen, those things have to go if you're going to walk like me. I said, God, you go ahead. You start doing it. And I hated it while going through it but at the end of it as I look back you never go back there. and even now in a world with chaos it's filled with chaos we can walk in peace being more like Jesus it pushes you and solidifies your hope that our bodies are going to be transformed and we're going to um, be, be with him and be with our father. I've really walked um, holding tight to Jesus. When I'm having my moments, I call on the name of the Lord and I am saved. And we have been through our trials, but we've never let go of Jesus. Of Jesus. When you're walking with Jesus, 
He is the one that gives you identity. He leads you to the Father. And the Father and Him are one. And a Father gives identity. What Jesus did is he always spoke with his Father. He was constantly in prayer. It's this constant communion going on. And I find myself in a constant communion. A constant dialogue, listening more. I'm, I'm trying to not talk as much, but be real aware to hear what the Father wants to say. Because Jesus never did anything unless the Father told him. How would Jesus do it here on earth? You know, like, how would he do it? How would he do this life? What would he accomplish? What, who, who needs to be heard today or loved? And that might be through text or communicating with people, um, reaching out, going on a walk, spending quality time with people, um, reconnecting with someone you haven't seen for a few years. Cooking. Um, cooking, baking. Baking. Before I know it, I might have like six batches of cookies. I'm like, who can I give these to today? And <laughs> 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 yeah, that's totally spirit-led. It is, yeah. yeah. Worship music is blaring, and she's <laughs> just going to town. I nerd she's out about on spirit. all of it. <laughs> He speaks to us in different ways, yeah. uh, well, but our story about Stonebridge is that we visited quite a few churches and didn't quite feel like any of them were right until we visited Stonebridge, and it was just a settling in our spirit. And that was him speaking to us, and then mm -hmm. God spoke the word centralized yeah. over you and stake your claim to me. Mm -hmm. So we did just that. We staked our claim in Marietta, moved to the city, and. Mm -hmm. And just through the church, community, and work, just began to be more and more centralized. So it's been a really beautiful thing. But he also speaks through like other people, just in ministry time or praying with friends, through things, through life things. Um, he speaks through his word, pictures, and visions too, and dreams. Sometimes just a thought that you know you wouldn't have on your own. <laughs> right, yeah. A lot of times it's that feeling of peace too. If we're making a big decision or something, I've got to have that element of peace. I know that's the Spirit. I think it's just making room for the Spirit, listening for His Word. And of course, the, the more we get to know Him, the more we're gonna know His Word, we're gonna know His leading. I'm self-employed and, um, and I love what I do. I get to serve people in a pretty intimate way, talking about their finances. And so I get to know my clients so intimately and just have Spirit-led conversations about life and, you know, I desire that wisdom for God because that's when the true value comes by that gentle leading of the Spirit and sometimes not so gentle, but if we begin to stray off the path, it's the Spirit that corrects us. It's the Spirit that pulls us back mm -hmm. and, and Him claiming that we're His, not us claiming we're His. I really try to keep my ears open, my eyes open and um, be sensitive to any needs out there. Spirit, you're my helper. You're my guider. You help me remember things. Like, it's all you. This is you. This is you. I'm just here, <laughs> trying to obey and listen. Do what you ask me to do.
It was great. I think I saw Scott here earlier. Scott Williford and his team at V-Link put those together. He did a great job, and we appreciate that. And that was uh, Stephen and Jackie Smith were the first couple, then Ben and Candace Ferris. If you'd like to be on Candace's uh, cookie list, we can. she's right over there. You can grab her at the end. Uh, so today, I, I really just want to talk about one word. Um, we have two values. That they're, they're huge. We could spend a lot of time on both of them. Uh, being led by the Spirit, super important. We talked about that a ton in June, and so I'm actually not going to talk about it today. Again, not because it's not important, but because I kind of said everything I had to say in June. Under that umbrella of Jesus as our good shepherd. He's our shepherd. We're sheep. We follow him. Uh, you may want to go back, uh, if you, if you want to dig into that a little bit, the July 2nd message. Y'all were at the lake. We had church that day, and there was, we talked some about... We talk some about what it means to be led in a decent bit of particularity. And so you may want to go back and listen to that if that's an area where you're looking to grow. Uh, today we're going to focus mostly on this idea of becoming like Jesus. That's rooted in Romans 8.29. We're predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus. And that's an internal piece. You know that. That's our hearts becoming more like His and if you begin to think through, well, what exactly does that mean? The fruit of the Spirit is a place to start. Galatians 5, those nine virtues, those fruits of the Spirit, those are, that, that is the character of Jesus. That, that's who he is. And so we want to grow more loving, more kind, more peaceful, more patient. We want to do those things 100%. What I want to talk about today is humility. And humility is the dirt that the, that fruit grows in. Um, it's not more important than any of those things, but it does come first. Uh, if we're not growing in humility, then we're not going to be able to grow in any of those other nine virtues. It, it starts with a posture or an orientation of humility. And we've said this before, humility has two uh, dimensions. There's one that's we'll call it Godward. And that's acknowledged need or recognized dependence. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. The second understanding of humility, that second dimension, is it's more of what we actually tend to think about. It's that sense of lowliness or a word that we've used before, self-forgetfulness. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That really is an other-oriented dimension of humility it, it also, just like those other virtues, those fruit, that it comes out of that Godward dimension first. If we're not uh, growing in our conviction that we need God, that, we're de that we are dependent upon him, then we're not going to grow in any of these other areas. We're not going to be able to serve other people. It's not for very long because we're going to feel like I got to take care of myself. If we're not convinced that God's taking care of us, we're not going to become more peaceful or more patient or more kind if we're not acknowledging, growing in our conviction that we need him. And I'll unpack that a little bit towards, towards the end of our time. So uh, Luke 18, we're going to look at a parable and then two encounters Jesus had that's back to back to back where he is explaining or he's painting a picture of what this Godward dimension of humility is. And again, th this is a key part of becoming more like Jesus. He was, he was humble. We used to sing this old song, Jesus is a, he was the humble king. And you see both dimensions of humility in his life. You see his dependence upon the Father. He says, I don't do anything 
that the Father doesn't do, and I don't say anything that the Father doesn't tell me to say. There's dependence there. And we see the lowliness, the meekness in him. He rides into a donkey. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's his claim to kingship. A deliberate fulfillment of Zechariah 9. See your king comes to you gentle and lowly or gentle and humble riding on a donkey. One of the greatest invitations in the Bible. Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I'm gentle and lowly or gentle and humble in heart. He washes the feet of his disciples knowing one's about to betray him and one's about to deny him and the rest are about to desert him. He still washes their feet. He says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. We see both dimensions of humility in Jesus. Again, this is a key element of what it means to be conformed into his image. Fruit are really, that, those, those Galatians 5 virtues, super important. This is the, the dirt that those things grow in. So first the parable. Remember, a parable is a made-up story. It's taken from real life, but it didn't really happen. And it's intended to teach a spiritual truth. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So we miss the power of this story because we know the rest of it. So when we hear Pharisee, most of us automatically go to bad guy, opposed to Jesus, enemy of what God is doing through Jesus. And we hear tax collector. For many of us, we think Zacchaeus or Matthew, the only two that we know, and they were followers of Jesus. And so when we hear this story, we're predisposed to seeing the Pharisee as a negative example and the tax collector potentially as a positive example, very different from Jesus's first audience. When they hear the word Pharisee, they're thinking, out of everybody I know, those guys are the closest to God. They're the most righteous. They're the most holy. They're the most obedient. They're, they're in a class by themselves. They would, when, when, the crowd that's with Jesus, beginning at the end of Luke 9 all the way through Luke 20, Jesus is walking to Jerusalem and he's got this crowd with him and it's a mixed bag. It's some of his disciples, it's some enemies, it's some kind of just hangers on. And he's teaching them as he's physically walking and they're physically following him. He's talking to them about discipleship. Again, from the end of Luke 9 all the way through, I think it's the end of chapter 19. And so when those guys who are walking with him, when they hear this story, when they hear Pharisee, they're automatically thinking, okay, he's going to be a good example. That's the guy that we need to emulate. And when they hear tax collector, they're thinking the opposite. Tax collectors were despised. They're not just because they took money from Jews and gave it to the Roman government, they were dishonest. They, they defrauded people. When, they, when tax collectors come to John the Baptist in Luke 3 and say, uh, what do we need to do to demonstrate our repentance? He says, don't take more money than you're required to, which is what they did routinely. Your tax bill is $1,000 and they would charge you $1,200 or $1,500 or whatever and you had to pay it. There's no appeals process. And they got to pocket the rest. They were despised. And so we've got these two guys. And again, when you just hear the opening line, if you're in Jesus's crowd that day, you're thinking Pharisee good, tax collector bad. 
The surprise ending is that's reversed. Jesus says it's the tax collector who goes home justified before God, not the Pharisee. That word justified is intentional that Jesus chooses. To be justified and to be forgiven, they're not, they're not, those aren't synonyms. When I think about forgiveness, I think about my sin uh, putting me in God's debt. And forgiveness is having that debt erased. To be justified, my sin makes me guilty of a crime. I'm guilty. And to be justified is to be declared innocent and put in right standing with God. If we're guilty and we're in wrong standing, to be justified is declared innocent and put in right standing. So when these guys hear this, it's the tax collector who's justified. They're saying, so you're you're telling me that the cheater and the liar and the traitor walked out of the temple in right relationship with God. That's what you're telling me. And the faster and the tither and the obeyer walked out of the temple in wrong relationship with God. That's what Jesus is teaching them. That, again, for us, that's a bit cliche. For them, what? They know tax collectors. And they're thinking, those guys? How in the world are those guys... In right, how can they be in right relationship with God with all of the things that they're doing? And the key is the prayer of both men. The Pharisee stands to pray. That's, there's nothing arrogant about that. That's normal posture for prayer. But his prayer is not, not really a prayer. It's kind of a self-eulogy. Here's how he, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not an evildoer or a robber or an adulterer or even like this tax collector. That's a bad way to start prayer, by the way. That's, not, that's what he does. What he's saying is, God, I thank you that I'm not a sinner. That's what he's saying. Those are all categories of sinners. God, I thank you that I'm not a sinner. And then he goes on to say, this is what I'm doing. I fast twice a week. The law says you fast once a year on the day of atonement. Pharisees fasted on Monday and Thursday. Look how much more I'm doing than what you're requiring. I tithe on all that I get. The law says you tithe on what you grow, what you produce. The Pharisee is saying, I even tithe on the things that I buy from the market just in case that guy didn't. It's above and beyond. Those things are not bad. Objectively, looking at their lives, the Pharisee is a better person than the tax collector. The Pharisee is, he's following the law and even going above and beyond the law. The tax collector is breaking the law repeatedly. But the tax collector's approach to God is to acknowledge that. I'm a sinner. He won't even look up to heaven. He beats his chest, which is a sign of grief and contrition. God, have mercy on me. One of the ways of understanding mercy is the withholding of just punishment. So sin has consequences. God judges sin. We say he punishes sin. Mercy is God, don't, don't do that. I need, I'm asking for you to not give me what my actions deserve. And Jesus says, that's the guy who leaves justified. It's not the one who has it all buttoned up. It's the one who acknowledges his sinfulness and pleads for mercy. Our, Jesus says, or excuse me, Luke says, Jesus is telling this parable to those who are confident or those who trust in their own righteousness, their own holiness, their own track record as obedient 
sons or daughters of God. That's, what the, that's the Pharisee. He doesn't realize he needs mercy because he's just looking and going, I'm better than all these other guys. Jesus says those who humble themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. That's, kind of, that's the punchline to that parable. Our version of trusting in our righteousness is being a good person. That's what we say. We don't go around saying I'm confident in my own righteousness or that person's confident in their own. That's not what we say. We say all the time, he or she is a good person. And the implication there is because they're a good person, God should treat them in a particular way. I'm around lots of people when people in their family die. That's part of my job. And it's not unusual to hear somebody say, Aunt so-and-so, she was just a good woman. Well, I know God's going to receive her because he was a good man. Relative goodness has nothing, to, has nothing to do with our standing before God. We've all sinned and fall short. It's do we acknowledge our need for him? It's ironic that the only way to be declared innocent is to admit that you're guilty. But that's, that's the story. So for us, when we're thinking about humility, it's an acknowledged need. My track record's not good enough. My obedience is not sufficient. I may be better than an adulterer or a robber or an evildoer, whatever. But that doesn't matter. I still fall short of the glory of God. I fall short of the perfection of Jesus, and I need his mercy. I'm in the seat of that tax collector. And then Jesus goes on and he gives, there are these two encounters that happen back to back right out of this parable. I think Luke stitches them together on purpose because this is, he's fleshing out what does it mean to live dependently upon the Lord? What does it mean to acknowledge our need before him? People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked these people. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the man heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. So our parable, the contrast is between a tax collector and a Pharisee. Now there's a contrast between a baby and a rich young ruler. And Jesus holds up the baby and not the rich young ruler, which again, that's a surprise. That's not what, we would, that's not what his audience would think. This rich young ruler is sincere. He approaches Jesus with a genuine question. He's devout. He's kept the law. Jesus doesn't say, no, you haven't. You have broken those. He doesn't say that. He's devout, he's, and, and wealth at this point was really seen as a sign of God's blessing or God's favor. So you've got a guy who seems to kind of have a lot of things together, seems to be the kind of person who would receive the kingdom. 
Remember, the kingdom is a rule and reign of God. It seems like the kind of person who, would, who is living under the rule and reign of God, sincere and devout and seemingly blessed. And a baby, we tend to idolize and idealize babies and toddlers and children. Not so in Jesus' day. They were the least. They were takers more than givers in a household. Like they, they didn't contribute. They were seen as insignificant in a lot of ways. And Jesus is saying, you've got to become like one of those guys. You've got to become like a baby. And he uses the word baby, not even little child at the beginning. The, the, the moms are bringing their babies, lap babies to him. When you think about how a baby receives holy and the lack of self-consciousness, Babies don't contribute really anything to their own well-being. All they can do is cry and let you know that they have a need. By and large, and I mean this kindly, babies are the most incompetent set of people on the planet. <laughs> Think about that. Think about the things that we celebrate with a baby. Look at Trent. He's sitting up today. <laughs> so proud. He's holding his head up too. Like 45 minutes in, st still doing it. I bet if we laid Trent down, he can roll over. I mean, that's, that's what we do. Are any of you posting on Instagram that, that you sat up today? No. We throw a party when our children do. They, they can't do anything. I mean, even the most basic things, they can't do on their own. They contribute nothing to their well-being. Again, it's this picture of complete dependence upon the grace and mercy of another. Remember when we talked about sheep and shepherds, we said sheep are wholly dependent upon the care and the management of their shepherd for their well-being? Babies are the same. If a parent doesn't take care of a baby, they literally will die within a handful of days. That's it. Wholly dependent upon someone else. All they can do is cry and make their need known. But it's up to the mercy, the kindness, the grace of another to meet those needs. Rich young ruler's in a very different spot, isn't he? He can take care of himself really in a lot of ways. His wealth allows him to live independently of God. And when Jesus puts his finger on it and says, you've got to sell all that stuff, he walks away sad. There's no reason to doubt his sincerity. There's no reason to doubt his devotion. I would say, I, I don't know, it could be that he is rich because God has blessed him. I don't know. But when it comes down to can you trust God, will you trust God fully, the rich young ruler walks away very sad because he's very wealthy. Y'all have read the Gospels before. This is the only time that Jesus asks anyone to do this. Because for this guy, that pile of money is keeping him from living dependently or it's allowing him to live independently, however you want to see it. Babies have nothing. They, they don't know what we know looking at them. They contribute nothing to their well-being. They're completely dependent upon the care of someone else, the grace and the mercy and the kindness of another. This rich young ruler is not willing to put himself in a similar position. He's not willing to say, well, I'm going I'm to become like a baby. I'm going to get rid of my safety net. I'm going to sell my security blanket. 
and trust you to take care of my needs. It's a step that he's not willing to make. Baby's like a tax collector, and a rich young ruler's like a Pharisee. Tax collector stands before God and says, I've got nothing to offer you. I'm a sinner. I need your mercy. Babies with their parents. I've got nothing to offer you. I need your mercy and your grace to take care of me. Pharisee can be confident. They're really, really good at obeying the law. There's no, he did fast twice a week. He did tithe on everything that he got. 100%. He was uber obedient. He didn't recognize his need. A rich young ruler, not willing to sell his security blanket. It's an obstacle to trust. It pushes him towards independence. So as we're thinking about being conformed into the image of Jesus, what does that look like for us? Cultivating humility. Again, thinking initially about acknowledged need, this uh, named uh, dependence. God, I know that I need you. I'm, I'm 48 and this is something, life, so I'm just going to generalize. 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, life begins to teach you this. You begin to recognize, for most of us, we begin to recognize our limits. We can't control everything. Those kids who are really small that you can kind of make them do what you want them to do. They get older and then you realize you can't. You can influence, but you can't control. We realize the limits. Our bodies start breaking down. Is somebody in the room? This is how you feel. Your body is breaking down, and the doctors can't fix it. There are limits to what medicine and medical technology, your diet, the witch doctor, whoever, there's limits to what they can do. And you're running into that. We start realizing we're not necessarily going to be the CEO. We're not going to get on the cover of a magazine. We're not going to retire as multimillionaires. We start to realize the trajectory of our career in our late 30s and early 40s. It's more difficult to change. There's more behind you than there is in front of you. And we recognize the limits just of our own career path, our own skills. You're 40 and somebody comes along who's 29 and you're like, what? they're not supposed to be smarter than me. And they are. And then they pass you by. And you're like, no. That's not supposed to be that way. Life has a way, again, in those years of beginning to teach us this idea of it will humble you. Life will. And it can be a gift if we can receive it. God, I recognize my own limits. These are places I've always needed you, but I didn't know I needed you. Now I do. I reread this book the past couple of weeks called Leading with the Limp. Some of you read it by Dan Allender. I read it probably 12, 15 years ago, I think, maybe 10 years ago. And I read it again, and I'm limping more now than I was then. 
it resonates in a different way. And for many of you, you're, you're in that spot. There's a reason they call it a midlife crisis. You're recognizing, I'm in the middle of my life, and it's a crisis. It's not what I thought it would be. <laughs> and I can't fix it. I can't fix it. Life is teaching you limits. And if you will, you can hear the voice of God through that. I'm not saying he's causing any of that, but you can hear the invitation of God through that. Will you trust me? Will you acknowledge your need? Will you say to me, I can't make my kid do what I want? I can't make them act right. I need your mercy. Will you acknowledge I don't see how I can put enough in the IRA to be able to retire before I'm 93. I need your mercy. My body is falling apart and nobody can fix it. I need your mercy. Life can do that for you. Now, for many of you, you haven't hit that yet. And that, praise God. You, you don't need to go looking for it. It'll come find you. <laughs> Now, I mean that genuinely. Like, this is not necessarily anything that you need to try to make. Humility is one of the virtues that if you go right at it, you're going to miss it. And so I would encourage you, if, if you're not at a place where life is teaching you limits, what you can begin to do so you're ready when it does, you can put yourself in the spot of that rich young ruler and you can begin to say, God... What, what is it in my life that would make it difficult for me to trust you? What am I rich in? What do I have a lot of that could make me live independently of you? Is there anything that I'm in danger of becoming too attached to that if you said, I, I need that, I would say I'd walk away sad? You can begin to ask that question now, and that, you're, you're cultivating humility without, again, going directly at it. What you're doing is you're saying to the Lord, I want to live dependently upon you. Right now, honestly, my life is rainbows and butterflies. And so for me, trusting you is more of a luxury than an essential at this point because everything's going the way I want it to. But I know at some point that's not gonna be the case and I wanna be ready. And so I'm asking you now, to begin to detach me from the things that would make it difficult for me to trust you in the future. Those things, it may be tangible. For some of you, it may be your money. You may be the rich young ruler, very literally. And, and God may be putting his finger on the way you view and spend and save. It would probably be hoarding your money. Saving's okay, hoarding's not. It may be uh, your ideals. It may be much more intangible. It may be, you know, you have this picture of what your life is going to look like or how your family's going to turn out or, again, the, the direction of your career. And that may make it difficult for you to trust the Lord down the road if those things, when life happens in those areas. That's a little nebulous, but I want to just... If you're, if you're not in a spot where life is showing you your limits, there's nothing wrong with that at all. You're not behind the curve. You're just not patronizing or condescending. There's no, nothing. No. What I would say, if you're in that spot, 
I think, a way of cultivating humility, this dependence upon the Lord, when in your most honest moment you would say, I don't actually feel it because everything's going well. I'm, at, I, I'm able to get where I want to go. And there's, we've all, that, that's kind of the, I mean, I'm speaking stereotypically here. That's kind of the power of youth. That's kind of what it is in your 20s and into your 30s. And, there's, and enjoy it. And as you are, I would, just begin, I would encourage you to begin to ask the Lord, what is it that's going to trip me up? What's the thing that's going to make it more difficult for me to trust you when things maybe don't go exactly the way I want them? And just see what he says. See if he puts his finger on something. And now you can maybe, again, when, and I mean this kind of in air quotes, when, when depending is more of a luxury than a necessity because life is going so well, you can ask the Lord to begin to prepare you for when it will be essential because things aren't going so well. I don't know if any of that made, those last, that last seven minutes might not have made a ton of sense. But uh, I think maybe for a few of you, I hope it did. Let me think. One other thing I want to share, two things, just as bullet points. One, I don't want you to hear the Pharisee and the tax collector. The moral of that story is not don't brag. That's not it. You can... If you're humble, you won't brag because you'll recognize everything you have as a gift. You don't brag about what you got for Christmas. You celebrate what you got for Christmas and you enjoy it, but you don't brag about it. You're not boasting. If, if you're walking in humility before the Lord, then, then you're not going to boast. But you cannot boast and still be proud. Many of us learned to not boast. It's called good manners. That's not the same thing as good character. And so I, I don't want you to hear the moral of the story just being, well, if the Pharisee had just not bragged about his fasting, then he would have been, no, he would not have been okay. All the stuff still would have been in his heart. He was at least honest enough to say it. The issue is, do we recognize our need? It's a heart posture, not a, not a behavior. And then the second thing, just when we're thinking about one another and what does it look like for us to live in humility towards others, washing feet, again, I, I would just encourage you to say yes to that, recognizing that's going to be a difficult posture to take over time with others if you're not confident that God's going to take care of you. It's very difficult to pour yourself out for somebody else if you're not confident that you're going to get filled up on the back end. And God's the one that does that. Otherwise, you're either doing kind of a quid pro quo with other people, which is not service, or you're going to just get to a spot where you've, you're unwilling to give of yourself because of kind of what it does. You're just not confident that that's going to be returned to you in any way. And so that's why I was saying it's important for us to learn to live dependently upon the Lord if we ever want to serve others. We have to know that he's going to meet our needs, that he's the one who's going to give us all that we require. I think of Paul saying, I pour myself out like a drink offering. He can do that because he's confident. I've learned the secret of contentment in all things. That it's... 
that learning the secret of contentment in all things, I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me. He's the one who fills me up, then allows me to pour myself out like a drink offering. Does that make sense? Sometimes we just focus on this without this, and we, get, we, we wear out or we burn out. And I don't want that to happen to anybody. Okay. So we're going to take communion. The way we'll do that, you'll come forward a row at a time, break off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, gluten-free and uh, prepackaged communion here. We're going to have ministry teams here up in the front. This is what I want you thinking about as you take communion. This is a great reminder of God's trustworthiness and his provision for us. This is how we know what love is. When we were still sinners, when we were still tax collectors, and when we were still Pharisees, when we were both, they're both sinners. Jesus died for us. Will not he who did not withhold his only son give you, give us, give me all the things that we need? This is a great, as you take communion, this physical act, the prayer is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to your hearts and reminding you His grace is sufficient. You're not all-knowing, and He is. You're not all-powerful, but He is. You're not all-good, but He is. You're not all-wise, but He is. And so we can trust Him. We can say to Him, this is an area of need for me. Would you come and help? That's what prayer is, God. I'm inviting you into this area. If you're not praying about something, it's either because you don't want God's help or because you don't think he can help. God, will you intervene in this situation? It's beyond me. If you'll close your eyes, we're going to pray. If you're helping with communion or ministry, come on forward. I rambled us past our time. Let's, um, I don't want to miss this. Here's what I want you to do if you're willing to do this, uh, two quick prayers, and then you can respond with communion. One, as life showing you your limits? I do think there's some here at your bodies. Is life showing you your limits? If so, would you be willing to pray something like this? God, I confess that in this area of my life, you fill in the blank. I'm bumping up against my limits, what I can control, what I can make happen. And I don't like it. But God, in this moment, I want to invite you, if you're willing to do this, God, I want to invite you to step in, to intervene. I want to acknowledge my need in fill in the blank area. Would you be gracious and would you be merciful? Would you help me to depend fully upon you, to walk humbly with you in this area of my life? Second, Maybe this is for someone who you would say, Think, I, I, that doesn't resonate with me at this point. I can think about that academically and theoretically, but in the reality of my life, that doesn't hit. Would you pray something like this if you're willing? God, I don't want to be a rich young ruler. I don't want to become so attached to some gift, to some strength, to some resource 
that it becomes difficult for me to trust you fully and completely. You're better than anything that you give me. So would you put your finger on anything in my life that would make it hard for me to depend upon you either now or in the future? It scares me to pray that prayer. I don't want to sell everything. But God, I want to trust you to meet every one of my needs. I want to receive your rule and your reign like a baby. I don't want to walk away sad like a rich young ruler. Holy Spirit, as we take communion, I pray that this, as we take bread and juice, I pray that you would be building up our hearts, leading us more deeply into the, the freedom and the joy of humility. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 